The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody tonight and a big welcome. And um, some of you have heard me say this before, but we Common Ground leaders were learning that, of course, not everybody feels so welcome showing up. And uh, so we appreciate that people are willing to walk through the door and check out what we do here and who we are here. And we just like stating, it's good to state that although we understand that it isn't necessarily a safe place for everyone, we aspire to be a welcoming community for everybody in our wider metro community. And we really appreciate any input you might have how this place can be welcoming. And uh, at the beginning of the year, it seems appropriate just to reflect a little bit about this path. It's been a while since the Buddha was around, and folks since that time have been interested in how, what the Buddha had come to understand about his own heart and what he was able to articulate, you know, teaching for about 45 years after his deep, insights that he had in his early 30s or mid-30s and then taught until about 80, 85 years of age before he passed away. And somehow, amazingly, really, 25, 2600 years later, that articulation about what he had come to understand is still relevant, even though for about 500 years it was just an oral tradition, right? And then eventually they wrote it down and you know how that is. It keeps, you know, little adjustments and adaptations and <laughs> not so good editings. And But still, somehow, there's some clarity that didn't get lost through all those generations about just the nature of our heart and mind and really the nature of how to be a loving, wise, skillful human being. And the way the Buddha came to understand his own predicament as a human being with a mind and a body was that the fundamental problem was the mind, the heart, was misperceiving the way it is, right? And we kind of know this already, the real danger of fixed views. I mean, I bet every one of us at some point in our life really locked in some fixed view with a friend, a partner, or something, only to find out we were completely wrong, right? And like, but we can be so sure even when we shouldn't be, right? Makes you wonder what we're sure about right now that we shouldn't be, you know? I mean, this is the real danger. The Buddha calls this attachment to views. But you know, this arrogant certainty we have about so many things, and it's so part of how our mind operates in the world in relationship to others, that it, it goes unnoticed. It's sort of like being open, be knowing that we don't know, is actually pathologized. Like, what's wrong with you? Being uncertain, knowing that you don't know. And in a way, we, we sort of respect people who seem to think they know for sure we elect them <laughs> or something <laughs> like 
you know, or we, you know, make them queen of the heap, king of the heap, people who seem to have a lot of confidence that they're right. So, you know, the initial, the re- you know, the beginnings really for some, for a spiritual seeker, for somebody who's not content just to go along with the cultural flow of things, consumerism and fixed views and, you know, choosing a side and, you know, all the ways that we sort of get shaped and formed by culture. It really, the sort of initial spiritual intuition is compassion, like we take a look around, we take a look around at our own habit energies, our own conditioning, and we really sense directly like, um, I don't really seem to have <laughs> a good operating system that, that fits the life I'm living. You know, like something's off here. And some of you know this, but the word we use that gets badly translated as suffering, dukkha is the Pali word, Sanskrit word, that gets translated as uh, suffering, better translated as unsatisfactoriness. But the root of that word is, you know, like the carts at the time of the Buddha that were pulled by like an ox or something. When the axle is out of true, so it doesn't really fit into the wheel well, then when you pull that cart, it's not going to work very well, right? It's going to be really clunky. And so that's the root of the word dukkha is like when it doesn't work. <laughs> you know, the wheel doesn't work, the axle doesn't work, it doesn't work together. When life doesn't seem to work well, that's the unsatisfactoriness. And so this unsatisfactoriness is what we start to notice. I mean, I, I had my first real strong whiffs of this Way back when I was like 17 years old, 16, 17, I remember I got I was really into running back then, cross country and track and indoor track and and you know pretty good as a high school runner, um, good enough to think I was good I guess, <laughs> and I got injured, <clears throat> so even though I was sort of obsessively running, training and you know I had a break, I had to stop running for a few weeks and. And it just, I got reflective, you know, like, okay, I really want to win. I really want to get this time, you know. And then I noticed it was that same energy around academics, really want to get good grades, same energy around social relationships, really want to be liked. And I just, you know, just kind of normal reflection, like, so where does this end? You know, because it's pretty easy to see, like, okay, so even if I get what I want, in any of those areas, then there's just another thing to get and then another thing to get. So it just it was just like a week or so before I got healed and got obsessed about running again and other things. But in that space, I really got the, my first real whiff of dukkha, of the unsatisfactoriness. And what arises in that, with that deepening of understanding, and just this is just part of the world, you know, in any way that we think that we can become somebody, have some life that makes us immune to loss and grief 
and uncertainty, well, that's delusion, right? Because the, uh, the uncertainty and loss and vulnerability, that's just inherent in human existence. There's no escaping. It doesn't matter how beautiful or intelligent or privileged or wealthy or whatever we are, you know, you, we don't, I mean, just simply, we don't take anything with us, right? Whatever we acquire has the nature to be taken away. That's one of the things the Buddha recommended once that every day we contemplate five things. I'm of the nature to age. I haven't gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I haven't gone beyond sickness. I'm of the nature to die. I haven't gone beyond death. All that is mine, all that is beloved to me, right? my possessions, my relations, whatever, all of that will be taken. And then the last reflection, the fifth one, I am the owner of my karma. Karma means our, the intentional actions that set stuff in motion in my life. When I'm a jerk to my partner, that sets something in motion. She's not going to want to be around me. <laughs> right? So I am the owner of my karma, my intentional actions, heir to my actions, born out of my actions. Whatever I set in motion is going to be reverberating around me. So those are the five reflections the Buddha suggests we bring to mind every day. Right? So we have this you know, when we're fortunate, it may not be always pleasant, but when we're fortunate, we wake up in a more honest way about just the nature of human existence. And it's not about denying the real joy and the real beauty and the real kindness and love that we experience in life. Because clearly, I hope everyone has had moments that felt very beautiful and real and trustworthy. They don't last, right? But that doesn't mean when they're there that it's not beautiful and real and healing, right? When those beautiful moments do arise for us. But there's this other side of the equation too. And out of that arises a real compassion. What am I to do about dukkha? About, like even if we're living a relatively privileged privileged life and we have a decent job and we're not being oppressed, we are living where there's a lot of injustice. We know there are beings, human beings, other beings experiencing tremendous suffering. Kind of kind of takes the takes something away from having comfort, knowing that there are those without comfort. Right? So what do we do with this human existence where there are, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of vulnerability, there's always somebody suffering? I mean, I was feeling some loving kindness, some compassion during my meditation, and I just naturally brought to mind, and I could think of, I think I brought to mind maybe five or seven people that are in really dire straits, just in terms of medical crises, you know, people I'm pretty close to, either near death or just in a really difficult place. 
And I, and I didn't like work my imagination because there are probably a lot of other people I could have brought to mind too. Maybe I don't know them quite as well, but right. And then people I don't know, but why wouldn't I care about them? It's like, why do we privilege just the people we know? There are a lot of people who are being oppressed, being with illness, with racism, with sexism, with poverty, with this living in a war zone. So our heart gets moved, like what do we do with this? And the first, often the first thing we imagine doing, because it's just part of culture, is we we might take up, it's basically a more refined version of distraction, which are the different sort of spiritual inclinations that are about transcendence. To be blunt about it, it's really like, get me the hell out of here. You know, I want to be in heaven. I want to be in an exalted, expanded, ephemeral, or a refined, beautiful, peaceful place. I want to be in heaven, right? So most often, most religious, spiritual traditions have some version of heaven where we transcend the meanness, the vulnerability of the world, the pain in the world, right? And that's supposed to, that's like the, makes us happy. But in the Buddhist tradition, it's different than that. You know, it's, it's not about transcending. It's a lot, it's about learning how to be a human being. Learning how to be real, learning how to be open in the world we actually live in. Not getting the heck out of here, but learning how to be here with the enormous uncertainty with all the joys and sorrows that come and go, right? all the vulnerability, all the insecurity, with our conditioned minds, our habit-based minds. Anybody completely content with the habits you have? No, because our habits have arisen out of culture and our parents and, you know, none of it perfect. I don't know about you, but I mean, (laughs) it's amazing. Like when you think about how our minds, the conditioned habit-based minds were formed, like the kind of TV, the kind of people we were around. You know, it's easy when you're older and you, if your parents are still alive, you hang out with your parents and we can kind of infantize them. Like, oh yeah, that's just how my parents are. But just reflect about, we're the continuation of that. Right? We are just the natural continuation of our parents' minds and other mentors and the culture, the TV, the media, the books, and all of the sort of limitations of all that. So the Buddha's, you know, it's important to begin with that movement of compassion. I care. I care about being the sensitive being, realizing the axle is out of true. The wheel doesn't quite roll nicely. And that that's sort of built into being a sensitive being in this world. So we're not trying to pretty it up. We're not trying to be idealistic. We're trying to be real. We're trying to connect. 
and open and see so that that movement of compassion is actually authentic, not idealistic. Okay, what can be done? What should be done? And then if we're fortunate, we bump into a set of teachings or instructions that come from someone like the Buddha. And so the Buddha's approach is, okay, well, if the the problem is that we see nature, we see the experience of our lives, and we personalize it, and then we personally suffer, or we personally freak out, or we personally want to put our heads in the sand because it's too much, and we don't really want to see what's going on. We don't really want to take responsibility for the joy and the suffering in the world. We want to be in our little bubbles, you know. I'm into model trains, you know, or, you know, whatever our habit, knitting or cooking or coffee or, you know, it's just interesting what we, or we get into some narrow issue that, or raising our kids or finding a partner or, you know, finding clothes I don't have to iron (laughs) and don't have to bring to dry cleaning, you know. So we can get sort of obsessed about these things as a way of desensitizing ourselves to the world that we live in. Because the basic problem is that we're misunderstanding. So the Buddha says, as uncomfortable as it is, what I recommend for my own practice, my own life, is that you cultivate a mind that becomes increasingly sensitive clear and relaxed, exposed to our life. And not just inner, inner and outer, exposed to our life as it is. Open all the doors and windows. Because the basic idea that the Buddha came to understand or realize in his own life was, if you cultivate a mind that can be that sensitive then the mind's understanding, the way the mind relates, the way the mind understands, is forced to be in alignment with the way it is. So that, going back to that image of the wheel out of true, so the basic cause for the wheel being out of true, it isn't that nature or the world or our mind or anything is actually off, because it's just nature. It's like, Whatever the weather is, we never think that the weather's off. You know, or the way a swamp is. We don't say, this swamp is off. Right? Natural systems we don't think of as good or bad. You know, if you saw, if you happened to be in the woods and you saw a bobcat, you, your mind wouldn't go like, is that a good bobcat or a bad bobcat? Or even a tree, you know, good tree, bad tree. We don't think of natural systems in a dualistic way, do we? Good cloud, a bad cloud. But human-related things we do all the time. A good person, a bad person, a good haircut, a bad haircut. Good personality, bad personality. Right. So the, the basic problem was this understanding arose 
through culture that isn't in alignment with the way it is. So the Buddha says there's a way to correct one's understanding, which is to become a profoundly sensitive, relaxed, and clear, bringing those two mental or heart qualities together, developing relaxation or ease or trusting, allowing. So that sort of set of qualities, yielding, receptive qualities of the heart, together with brightness, clarity, alertness, interest, curiosity, bringing those two together, developing them together. And what happens, that heart, like you could call a mind or heart that's open, relaxed and clear. And so a heart that's relaxed and clear sees things as they are, right? Because it's not in denial. It's not distorted. It's not pretending that it knows. It's in this more this place of humility. So it's just seeing things as they are. And so the conditions, what's coming and going, the way it is, we call that in Buddhism, dharma, the way it is, or another word in Pali is dhamma. So you might hear either one of those words if you read or come to talks. So we see the way it is. We see dharma the way it is. And we see it over and over again because we're cultivating this balanced present moment awareness that's relaxed and clear, clearly aware of the present moment. And so the understanding comes into alignment with the way it is. Everything's nature, not self, not personal, not good or bad. It's what it is. Now, it's important to understand that this insight doesn't get in the way of you or me in all the different places that we engage in life in dealing with the relative world. Like in the relative world, when somebody is doing something wrong, we together have to stop that. You know, if somebody is oppressing or exploiting or (coughs) taking advantage or acting out their ignorance, their hatred, we don't, we, on the one hand, we understand, yeah, that's how it is. We can even, if there's a lot of that wisdom, we might even understand that that person is just that nature. They're just expressing the nature, the conditioning of their mind and body. But the desire, the compassionate desire to stop them or to protect the person who's being harmed, that's also nature. Right? So it's not like we become passive doormats because we understand we go from a self-centered view to a natural view of everything, including our own heart, the conditioning of our own heart and mind. It actually frees us up to be more responsive, more fiercely compassionate, more sensitive to what's off in the world and in our lives, and in our relationships, right? Because that balance, it's all about the deepening sensitivity. We don't take anything based on what culture tells us, what our habit energies tell us. Because when our habit says this, we say, well, that's just that habit, you know? Thinking I'm better than, thinking I'm worse than, or even thinking I'm the same as, right? Those are habits, 
So we don't, we're not living out of our habits because we recognize those conditioned habits for just what they are. Some might be relatively useful habits. Some habits might be quite toxic or neurotic. But we can see them. So the, the Buddhist path was really about not telling us what the truth is, but really laying out a path, right? So that's why, you know, <laughs> here at Common Ground and other Buddhist centers, we use that word practice maybe too much. Maybe it turns people off because it sounds like hard or, you know, that we're... Because what we really like to hear is like, no, you're already there, you just need to trust. One, one teacher that has been very important in my life, you know, he was very clear saying, yeah, it's not about following the heart, it's about training the heart. Because if we just follow the habits of the heart or habits of the mind, well, then we end up with a world like this. And uh, does it take that much reflection to realize that a lot of people are suffering a lot of the time because of the world being the way that it is? So we want to train the mind. And the basic way to think of that training is, you know what? Relaxing, calming, being more receptive, more sensitive because of the relaxation, that seems to be in the right direction. Being interested, you know, that interest that comes out of a sense of humility, knowing that I don't know, being clearly aware, that's a good thing. So as I've been saying, it's really this marriage of these two qualities. And you know, the Buddha taught for 45 years. There's imperfect collection of his teachings that have survived over these centuries. It's like fills a bookshelf, maybe more than a meter wide. You know, so there's I don't know how many volumes, but quite a bit of these teachings that have come down. But they're basically different ways to cultivate the relaxation and alertness and how to bring them together and how to persist in fine-tuning that balance of relaxation and alertness so that it becomes a very powerful force. We say sometimes in the Buddhist tradition that there's nothing more powerful than this balanced mind. We use that word, some of you have heard, samadhi. Because the way it gets translated, at least in the past, as concentration, it's not a good translation of the word samadhi. It's more better translated as the unification or the stability of the mind, the beautiful balance of the mind. Beauty is actually a pretty good word because when we have samadhi, when we have that beautiful balance of being really relaxed, really settled, and clear, right? That mind can't not, sorry, double negative, can't not see things that it hasn't seen before. That mind will see things it hasn't seen before. Nothing can remain hidden for long when the mind is in balance. And when we train the mind then to sustain the balance, so we have the continuity of this present moment awareness, well, we just start to see things we'd rather not see, like how our habit energies are unskillful or how some of our habit energies are quite skillful and we're grateful for them. 
how other people's habit energies are not skillful. <laughs> right? We're sensitive to everything. Somebody comes by, friend, let's say, and they're in a difficult mood, and we feel they're suffering because we're sensitive. That samadhi makes us sensitive to all the beauty, the 10,000 joys and sorrows in our heart, around us. It's really hard to be that sensitive. But see, that's exactly what we need because it's the sensitivity that provokes basically what understanding, what way of understanding can allow this heart to be this sensitive. See, we're going to keep relying on the understanding we got through culture until it doesn't work anymore. And you know what makes our understanding, our cultural understanding, the understanding we got from our parents not work? Being set more and more sensitive to the way it actually is. Right? So like wh- whatever frame you want to look at this, if we look at it like in my case being raised as, as a white person, right? When I'm not sensitive, whatever that frame, like that racial frame, so as a white person being um, conditioned as a white person, like part of that condition is not seeing race, like not noticing this is mostly a room of white people, like not noticing that is the conditioned habit that most of us here in this room, it seems, has. But when I train in sensitivity, then I start to notice things like that that I wouldn't otherwise notice. And it's unpleasant, right? And it's exactly the unpleasantness of noticing what I tend not to notice. Same thing around gender, same stuff around class, same stuff around you know, sexual attraction and power and shame and you know, basically everything in the human box, emotional box, social box, we start to feel. And to survive that sensitivity, the kind of wisdom in our heart, in our mind wonders, what understanding allows me to include everything I'm beginning to be sensitive to? What way of holding this actually works? So it's not like, you know, the Buddhist process, the Buddha's process, what he suggests for us, isn't that he's telling us the truth, and then we're trying to live inside of, you know, we kind of learn it, and then we try to live inside of it. He gives us a process. The process is basically becoming more sensitive. And then it's the exposure that the sensitivity sets in motion that forces the deepening of wisdom, the, an understanding that actually can hold it all, isn't afraid of anything, isn't afraid of the truth. I always think of Jack Nicholson in that bad movie. It wasn't great, at least, you know, where he's a, like a Marine colonel on trial for abuse at Gu- Guantanamo, I think. And they're kind of, you know, they're exposing some of the bad things they've done. And he, he starts to, he gets kind of cornered and then screams out, you guys can't handle the truth. <laughs> but... We're, we're going exactly the other way. Like we're really learning to open to the truth. And there's, you know, we have basically the Buddha and our spiritual ancestors who are saying, yeah, it isn't easy, but you can learn to handle the truth. 
the truth of human joy and human sorrow, the, hu- the truth of human meanness and injustice, and the truth of human healing and simple kindness. Right? We can handle that. We can be really intimate and unafraid of the whole, whatever life has to show. But it requires exposure. This is the real essence of the spiritual practice, or the spiritual path, rather, is learning how to expose ourselves to what we don't want to see and feel. (laughs) Doesn't that sound right? I mean, that sounds so trustworthy. We just don't want to do it. Because it, like, when in doubt, I mean, so basically we have two things we need to do. When we don't feel safe opening to what life is delivering, then it's not that we go to escape or denial. It's what can I do to develop the balance, the samadhi, so I can open to what I don't want to open to. And it's not just the horrors that we have to open to. We don't really want to relax in a clear way with the joys in our life either. Have you noticed that? Like when you're really experiencing something nice, it's not necessarily our instinct to really relax and be completely open and clear in that moment, to really let the simple joys in, let them touch our hearts. We tend to fill up the space, like either by thinking, oh, how can I make this last? Or even like when someone's being really kind or generous, we, oh, no, 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 no. Instead of first like really connecting with their good intention, their wanting to take care of us. I see that sometimes in my relationship with my spouse, when one of our teachers here, co-founder of Common Ground, and uh, it's like, yeah, I don't know, you know, it's like, I don't want to be in debt. I mean, I, I'm, I catch that more and more, of course. I'm, <laughs> I'm not only a bad spouse, <laughs> but in moments I am, you know, or an ignorant spouse, or, you know, I'm a human being, so I'm not perfect. And I, but sometimes I catch myself like, why not just, like, Sensing that the relative purity of her intention to connect or be nice or be generous and just let that be what that is. Really be undefended, really be clear of what that is. Soft, yielding, let it in, let it have its impact. Instead of already jumping to, okay, what am I going to do in response? Like if I'm going to take this in, I've got to be ready to give back. Right? That's that transactional or business-like mode we tend to fall. And it's just an egoic defense. You know, It's like that identity, I don't want to be the one in debt. I want to be the one who, like everybody owes. <laughs> <laughs> Right, because it's power. It's just a subtle or relatively subtle kind of power play that we have. Mostly, it's always operating, of course, these kind of patterns, but usually unconsciously. But this is what the sensitivity exposes and why we really, like what we bow down to in terms of respecting and grateful for is this path, right? So 
especially early Buddhists, people who orient to this historic guy who taught 2,600 years ago in this set of teachings that we recorded, you know, imperfectly, we really bow down to the path. It's a path of cultivating a stable sensitivity. That's why the calm, that's why the relaxation. We don't want a tight sensitivity. We need to feel good about sensitivity. So there's always this sort of ongoing refinement of the balance because when the sensitivity gets too much, we start to get a little anxious. So then the sensitivity isn't doing us any good. But if we have too much comfort, too much safety, and we're not using the comfort and safety to amp amp up the sensitivity, then it's sort of wasted. We start to get a little dull and indulgent in our privilege, in our comfort, in our easy conditions in our life. And we're happy to spend our life watching Netflix and without seeing what a delusion that is because it's all the rug's going to get pulled out and having spent 20 years watching Netflix is not going to help us when the rug gets pulled out, whether that's a divorce or a financial insecurity or medical crisis or death or global warming or being hit by an asteroid or whatever it might be, getting Lyme's disease. Ticks everywhere. They're getting closer. (laughs) With global warming, pretty soon they'll be in our backyard, those deer ticks, right? I mean, it's like, so part of the practice is really modulating, like we need comfort, we need safety, we need ease, but if we think it's, like always going to be there, we, s- we tend to take what we think is the easy route. I'll just indulge in my, relatively pr- my relative privilege and comfort and see if I can get to the end of my life before anything bad happens. You know, ride my relative privilege, good fortune to the end. You know, and I have one of those peaceful endings where I fall asleep and don't wake up. And that's a setup. I mean, at least in terms of how the Buddha. So then, if that's if that's what you see as a predominant attitude, you know, some fashion of that, then you want to bring in. You want to purposefully start to bring in what you're ignoring, impermanence, the suffering of other beings that you're somehow unconsciously complicit in, simply by ignoring it or simply by going along with the cultural stream, we're part of a lot of suffering. Just being an American can't help it. right? So we start to bring in the unpleasant facts, right? because it makes us more alert, makes us realize that indulging in comfort isn't a satisfactory strategy for living. right? It won't actually work. It's not like we're trying to be good. We're just trying to take care of ourselves and we realize at some point we can't do that without being sensitive to everybody. So it's interesting how selfishness that, I mean, I'm just, I'm being a little provocative here, but just that initial movement of wanting to care for this sensitive heart brings us into the world 
brings us into our interconnectedness, interrelatedness, unavoidably. Because being in a bubble is unsatisfactory. I mean, it works. When you go home tonight, it's really okay to feel the bubble of being in your relatively comfortable bed, doors and windows shut, your relative safety for your eight hours or whatever you have, right? But we don't want to imagine it's more than what it is. It's a relative safety, a relative comfort, and we want to let it have its relative effect of stabilizing, bringing in some calm, so that we're willing to play the edge of sensitivity, to develop exposure, to bring in the reality of uncertainty and vulnerability, to start to see and feel what we're not seeing and feeling. Because that's what changes the mind, changes the heart, right? Cultivates an understanding that's not afraid of anything, that's willing to include everything. That's not afraid of joy, not afraid of sorrow. And this is really where we want to go, right? We want to be free no matter the conditions. And so, you know, this word you've heard, I'm sure nirvana is the Sanskrit version and nibbana is the Pali version. And that word, it means really the, uh, the falling away of wrong view, of self-centered view, of the greed and hate that come out of self-centered view the greed, hate, and denial that come out of self-centered view. But it's also called the unconditioned, right? Because the when the understanding deepens, then the flavor of that is what we call unconditioned, meaning that intimacy, that compassion, that ability to engage, creatively engage, to do whatever's next in life. Not from a point of view of a plan, but just from being intimate and sensitive and the response, what we say or don't say, what we do, what we don't do, it really comes out of that. I was meeting somebody in the hospital yesterday, Wynn and I went see an old friend, one of the teachers here, a longtime leader and benefactor of Common Ground and and just difficult, difficult medical conditions. And this person has had several years of difficult medical conditions. And uh, just that weariness of life. And it was just really beautiful to see this person, you know, she has a deep practice. Just their ability to meet that with equanimity. And... uh, not have an idealistic view of life, not a negative view like, uh, screw this, I'm out of here, but not sort of neurotically thinking life is, you know, the only thing of value in life is to make it last as long as possible. And to really, like, okay, I'm ready for this to play itself out. I'm not afraid of this thing playing itself out whatever way it goes. So I'm going to leave it here. This is a topic that I'm guessing, you know, we have, all of us, a lot of experience about this 
reality of sensitivity, how we cultivate it, how relaxation and that humility, that clarity, that interest, and the balancing of those two qualities, and really how that transforms our life, our mind, our heart. So any questions that you have, any comments from your own practice you'd like to share with us, remember to point the mic like this right at your mouth so we can hear you. And we are recording tonight, just so you know that. Anybody want to start us off? What comes to mind? Yeah, please, right behind you. Hi. Um, I work in customer service, uh, you know, 40 to 60 hours a week. And something that I found through my practice growing and doing that opening up to these, um, and obviously I can't choose the kind of people that are coming in or how they feel. Um, my question is, is sometimes I find at the end of a 8, 12, 16 hour day, after seeing these things and actually seeing them and feeling them and, um, man, it's hard to come back to the center and the middle path when I feel as though I'm kind of taking that in and I send loving kindness as often as I can, which tends to be my reaction. Um, but it still wears on you when you see the suffering um, or dukkha of any type, really. Um, I guess what's the advice? Sometimes, you know, other I, like I said, taking a deep breath and trying to recenter, but after that long, kind of overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, like I notice in myself too, if I do get a break in a day that has a lot of that, you know, the one not so helpful instinct would be like, to look at the provocative news. What stupid politician did a stupid thing? <laughs> you know, something like that. As opposed to, and this I have, you know, developed as a habit, lying down. You know, going someplace relatively quiet and just lying down. And I practice dying, really. Like just sort of melting into the earth. And it's, this is what I meant, like really knowing when the sensitivity is too much then we really do need to retreat or seclude from the exposure. Because if we're exposed too much, too long, it's going to provoke habit energies that aren't helpful. We're going to get brittle and angry and or we're going to really close down. So it's better before we sort of react in an unhelpful way, we have so remember, the sensitivity isn't just to the people who you're on the line with. That sensitivity goes everywhere equally. So you're going to feel your own heart getting tight. Why wouldn't we feel our own heart getting exhausted, getting tight, beginning to react? And just like a good parent might say, you know what, honey? Daddy needs to go to the other room for a moment, you know? I'm going to go to the bathroom. And you lock yourself in and you, you know, you do whatever works to seclude yourself from whatever is overwhelming. And you, ref you find some skillful way to find balance, to connect with something your heart is willing to connect with, to be real with something your heart is willing to be real with. And you basically are relearning that life is to be trusted, but not with the screaming kid or the screaming customer, right? Now, sometimes we don't have an option to turn away. But you can have, remember to have compassion for yourself. 
Even if it's just that whisper in your heart, this is really hard for me right now. Because your heart will appreciate you acknowledging that reality. This is hard for me. I'm not saying it's harder for me than it is for this other person on the line. I'm just acknowledging the simple truth. This is really hard for me. I'm a screaming little two-year-old right now, and I'm just being real about it. And if I could do something about it, I would. I'd take you out to the park. You know, I'd give you an ice cream cone. But I can't. I'd like to. I hope that helps. Yeah. No, I mean, that's what I would say to myself. <laughs> I hope that helps. <laughs> yeah, please. Um, at the beginning of your uh, lecture, you have mentioned that uh, it's become a habit, or rather nature, to um, exploit or unju do unjust or even crime. And you also say that it is becoming nature to uh, react to that. Um, so, and then in the, towards the end of the uh, your discussion, you mention about the reference of uh, "If You Good Man." You can uh, what? The movie, the "If You Good oh. Man," that you mm. cannot handle the truth. Yeah. So, and uh, so exposing yourself to the truth. So I find it rather uh, paradoxical. Um, and I'm a bit confused about what, how to go by if somebody experiences an unjust uh, or crime. So is it a nature to not to react to that um, or just speak up to the whatever event that takes place? So if you could just uh, elaborate that. Yeah. So... Yeah, we, we want to cultivate sensitivity. We want to see what's happening in our hearts. We want to see what's happening around us. And initially, the reason is because not being sensitive takes a lot of psychic work. Being in denial, being superficial, being distracted is stressful, right? But also beginning to be more honest and more sensitive is stressful because it provokes, like when we see something or when we see what's happening to me or see what's happening to someone else, our heart's moved by that, right? But that's okay. Why? What's wrong with letting our heart be moved and responding? So I'm, 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 what was the, um, what felt like opposite or different? conventional life that you can say to go out there and be successful. By doing so, you do a lot of things that you're not supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think I see now. So, it's just sort of like a parallel view. But remember, we're changing the understanding. So, here's the thing. Yeah, that's a really good point, which I think I understand what you're pointing at now. So, in the beginning, we're totally engaged, we're totally doing a lot, and we get a world like this, where there's a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice. 
And then we, we realize that we're suffering and we're moved by that. And we're moved to consider why is there so much suffering? And then we run across maybe the Buddhist teachings. He says, there's a lot of suffering because human beings don't understand the way it is. They're not seeing clearly. They're living from a self-centered point of view. That's how they see things. And when, they live from, when people live from a self-centered view, then you get a world like this. And, the, and his resolution is, if you don't just practice, don't try to live from a not self-centered point of view, because that would be like an imitation. Instead, train yourself to be really sensitive. The sensitivity will uproot the self-centered point of view. Right? So then we're in this sort of middle place of practicing. And it may seem like initially a little passive because it's very hard to practice when we're in daily life and really exposed. So initially when we start, we create these places like we go on retreat or we sit in a quiet place and meditate in the morning or something like that where we're learning how to be really sensitive but in a safe place. We're learning how to be sensitive and to naturally respond to whatever we feel and see. And how do we respond when we're sitting? Well, we respond with compassion. Oh, this thought's arising. It's being known. Can that be okay? That's a compassionate response. But it doesn't really tell us what to do when we're out at work or arguing with our partner or whatever. But it's building up the skill set. We're starting where it's simple. Then later maybe an hour later, we take it on the road. We still have the same intention we had when we were doing our formal meditation, but now out in the world, we want to be relaxed and we want to be sensitive. But instead of then reacting from a self-centered point of view, what we're sort of trusting, taking refuge in, is being relaxed and clear. So you're not telling yourself how you're going to handle this difficult interaction. You're just telling yourself, honey, you know, it's okay to relax. Honey, it's okay to see exactly what you're seeing, to name it, to acknowledge it. This is happening. This is being known. Relax. Can I relax? Can this be okay? Right? So we're, and then you're going to say something. You're going to do something, right? Because the moment sort of is calling for it. But you're not for or against what you say or what you do or what you don't say or what you don't do. You're just relaxed and clear. So we're changing the mode from being the doer to being the one who knows. So there's still engagement, but now the engagement is coming out of sensitivity instead of the engagement coming from a self-centered point of view. I need to do. I need to do it right. I need to do what's going to get me what I want to get. Those are all self-centered views. So we're replacing the self-centered doing with the devotion to being present in this relaxed and clear way. And we're trusting that whatever response, whatever I say or do, it's going to be more skillful because I'm taking refuge in the relaxation, the sensitivity, the clarity. It's a real leap in the dark to trust that than to trust the doer, me being the doer. So we need kind of to create a transition. And that's why we go on retreat. That's why we sit every day when we can. We're learning how 
to trust the awareness, just a mindful awareness, more than Mark doing or you doing, you know. Because we know, we've experienced that in moments where what we said, what we did, just sort of came out of the moment and we just have that sense, that flavor, like, yeah, that was, I can't believe how skillful I was in that situation. But it didn't come from a plan. It really came from being intimate in the moment. And we learn gradually over time. And then you'll start to see certain places in, in your life you can actually do it. But there are other places where you're always coming from the egoic, self-centered point of view. You just don't trust being present and seeing what happens. Right? And it's, and it's just sort of interesting. So wherever that edge is where you're almost there, then really encourage yourself just to trust more the relaxation and the clarity, the sensitivity that comes from the relaxation and have the attitude, it will be interesting to see what I say or don't say or do or don't do here. See if it helps, see if it's skillful. And if it's not skillful, then learn from that. Yeah, Lewis, did you have a thought? You want to pass it back to Lewis? It has to be relatively quick, Lewis. Absolutely. Um, I'm getting ready to leave again. Ah. Um, you know, I was in Ethiopia uh, sept- August, September, looking at indigenous wisdom and practice there. And it was challenging and scary at times, but very rewarding. Now I'm getting ready to go to southern Mexico and be in the indigenous Native American and African heritage communities there. And I think what I really wanted to bring up is that I bring my practice wherever I go, and I keep noticing that Buddhist wisdom resonates with indigenous life. And I feel like what I want to try and bring back is signaling to the younger people that I work with that reclaiming an indigenous way of life where you strive to live in harmony with the natural world is worth struggling for. And my practice when I'm like far away and dealing with uncertain things, I I keep telling myself, you know, I'm in this body, but ultimately I am not just this body. And I'm trying to let the right thing come through me and receive the wisdom that will not only help me, but help the people I live with care about and want to support. Yeah, and I've known Lewis for a long time, and I think this worked, like you could imagine somebody doing it in a really arrogant way, like I'm going down there to be the wise elder. And I know Lewis, and it's like, you know, no, I'm going there to be part of the soup, and something beautiful will happen being in the soup with those folks, just like you are here and, and all the different communities. And that's the thing about that's that sensitivity we've been talking about, like relax, and it's like growing roots into the moment, into the communities, into the sort of shared wisdom. And I, I, the other point you, know, you made is so important about nature, you know, and it's hard in the city, but nature is here too. The sky, even groups of people are like nature. And there's something about 
natural systems being our teachers and how to seek that out. Because there's something simple and settled in how natural systems take care of their business. And we just need to like get in the soup. Like if like when you go to a natural place, don't try to do something. It's like just be there, be part of what's there. Like join in that, you know, time on the beach or whatever it is for you. Yeah, we should probably end here. Thank you, Lewis, for the, the sharing and other people for your comments. We'll just take ten seconds, let go of the words, take a breath. And thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together. Jean has a few announcements for us, just a bunch of upcoming things, but maybe just mention the top couple, Jean. But there is a new newsletter you can pick up for the winter and early spring on your way out above the shoe rack and also under the bulletin board. I think it once a month for eight months. Yeah. Santi Carlo's teacher was once asked about how Westerners should practice, and he said something, I think Westerners just need to go into nature, <laughs> you know, and hang out, and they'll understand. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.